Welcome to Gridlock Break, a no-labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today we'll hear from David Crane, a lecturer in public policy at Stanford University and the founder and president of Govern for California, which is working to bring a more pragmatic approach to state government. He also previously served as a special advisor to Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Today, Crane will discuss the work of Govern for California and the critical but often underappreciated effect that local and state government has on our lives. Let's listen in. Okay, great. Thanks, Nancy. Um, Something that I've learned over my, I'm not coming up on the speaker view here. Um, I, I guess I'm assuming you guys can see me. Something I've learned over the past 10 years is that our country's business, financial, intellectual, and social leadership can't sit on the sidelines. I mean, we know that more than anyone. And that the they, who everyone talks about needing to do something, they need to fix this, they need to fix that. The they uh, that needs to fix what's wrong with our country or our state or our city is obviously us. And uh, we all need to engage at every level, level of civic life. And that's what No Labels is about. And that's certainly what Govern for California is about. And our speaker today, David Crane, is an unbelievable example of that kind of civic leadership. Uh, Those uh, of us that are working on fixing government at whatever level really, I think, have a lot to learn from one another so that we can all collectively succeed. David is a lecturer in public policy at Stanford University and the president of Govern for California. And, And you're the founder, aren't you too, David? Yes. Yes, founder and president, didn't say that. Um, From 2004 to 2007, David served as a special advisor to Governor Schwarzenegger in California and previously was a longtime partner at Babcock and Brown, a financial services company. David also serves on the board of the Goldman School of Public Policy at the University of California and formerly served on the UC Board of Regents and as director of the California State Teachers Retirement System. Uh, Environmental Defense Fund, and the Volcker Ravage Task Force on the State Budget Crisis. Um, David, if you could provide some opening remarks for us on the work of Govern for California and your experience gaining support for legislators who govern in the general interest, I'll uh, follow up with that fielding questions for you. Will do. And uh, Martha, thank you for inviting me here. Nancy, thank you for having me and for congratulations on building uh, a remarkable organization that I have watched from a distance and um, gives me great hope uh, that uh, things can change in our country. So I'll spend about 10 minutes and explain how I got into this odd situation of of running a state political activity, uh, you know, an organization focused on California state politics. As Martha mentioned, I spent 25 years in business. From a young age, I had always planned to go into politics or policy. I I was going to work for 10 years and earn a bit of money, so we were secure. Uh, But then I ended up spending 25 years in business. Finally, the year I turned 50, which was 2003, I said to my wife and my business partners that I was leaving at the end of that year no matter what. I had to burn that ship if I was going to do something else. And it was completely serendipitous that the recall election in California came along that year and Arnold Schwarzenegger threw his hat in the ring and asked me if I would help. And I had known Arnold since the late 1970s. 
Uh, we had actually bonded over political discussions at that time. Uh, so I said, sure. And since politics had been my avocation for all my life, and I thought I, I knew a lot about it, I said, sure, assuming that I actually knew a lot about governance in California. So he won. We go up to Sacramento. He appoints me special advisor. And I go up there thinking I know everything. And pretty quickly, I learned I knew next to nothing. And it was shocking how little I knew having a title as special advisor to the governor. First thing I learned was that the legislature is truly a co-equal branch of government. It's Article 4 in our state constitution. It comes before the executive branch, which is Article 5. Uh, it's even tougher than at the federal level because at the federal level, presidents, for better and for worse, have a lot of unilateral power over foreign policy and defense policy. Governors have next to no power over anything uh, that uh, except domestic policy and to get anything done in California. Arnold Schwarzenegger, he could have been Abe Lincoln. He needed 62 votes in the state legislature. We have 80 members of the assembly and 40 members of the Senate. Majority is 62. Uh, and we didn't even know all their names. That was the first thing I learned. And uh, second thing I learned was that we didn't know all their names, but there were three groups that knew all their names. Group number one are those who get paid by the state government. So in California this year, we will spend about $300 billion, including federal funds, about $220 billion from the state. Roughly 70 cents of every dollar will go out either to a government employee, like a prison guard, or, or a healthcare corporation. They know the names of every legislator, and you can't blame them because it's a business for them. And if you had one customer, say you ran the prison guard union in California, this year, your members, there are 57,000 employees in the prison system in California. They attend to about 125,000 inmates. Uh, this year, they will collect about $10 billion in comp and benefits, which is five times more than the revenues of the largest private prison corporation in the country. They've gotten six salary increases in 10 years, and you can't blame them for knowing the name of every legislator, because if you had a single customer who provided you with $10 billion a year, you'd know everything about that customer as well. Healthcare corporations this year, Medi-Cal, which is our form of Medicaid, we now, uh, which now covers 13 million Californians. One in three Californians gets coverage, although not always access, which I'll come back to, in California. Our spending has doubled on Medicaid from 50 to 100 billion a year, mostly in favor of hospitals and other healthcare providers. They know the names of every legislator. The other group that knows the name of every legislator, uh, the second group are the crony capitalists, the new car dealers, the real estate association, the Dental Association, they know the names of every legislator le legislator in California because the legislature writes 29 codes, the business and professions code, the labor code, all the codes, you know, states provide 90% of domestic services. So they know the names of every legislator because they want those codes to create moats around their enterprises to fend off competition. And the third group are the regulated entities. Pacific Gas and Electric, Southern California Edison, they know the names of every legislator. The, you know, AT&T, which is less regulated than before, knows the name. DoorDash, Uber, and Lyft did not know the names of every legislator five years ago. Now they know the names of every legislator because of the impact on their businesses from what our legislature can do. That left about, in today's math, 39 and a half million Californians who do not know the names of their legislator. And uh, I... Uh, 
uh, I'm oftentimes, I shouldn't be stunned by this, but as, as um, was mentioned, I teach at Stanford where there are a lot of very bright people and I'll be walking around campus when the campus is open and there'll be some discussion taking place on occasion. And nine times out of 10, if it's a political discussion, it'll be about domestic policy because states provide so much of that. And on the peninsula where Stanford is, the issue is often high-speed rail where everybody hates it. So I'll walk up to such a conversation and after listening to somebody speak, I'll say, you know, that's a really excellent point you're making. Who's your state assembly member? And they'll look at me and they'll say, well, that's Anna Eshoo. I'll say, no, 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 not your congressperson in, con in Washington, your state assembly member. They won't know. Then I'll say, well, fine, who's your state senator? And then they'll look at me like I'm nuts and they'll say, well, that's Dianne Feinstein or Kamala Harris. I'll say, no, 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 your state senator. And I have to point out to them, and I have to do this all in California, is that the state assembly member and the state senator from Palo Alto have more authority over the lives of Californians by a long shot than Kamala Harris, Dianne Feinstein, arguably Nancy Pelosi, arguably the president because states provide domestic services. We have 6 million kids in public school in California. We have 13 million people on Medicaid. We have 20 million people whose private sector lives in their enterprises, including labor, are governed by those codes. Uh, but the only people that know the names of the legislators are those special interests that I mentioned. So that was the second thing I learned. And then the third thing I learned was that we, couldn't even change those legislators out because the rules in California were stacked against us. We had gerrymandered districts where the legislators chose their voters, and we had closed primaries where the extremes and the special interests, the ones who pay the most attention, controlled who got nominated and, and would make it to the general election. And in a state where people sort of self-select where they live and districts are either blue or red, the Democrat who got nominated was always going to win the general and the Republican in a blue district was always going to win the general in that district. So, you know, Arnold goes up there saying he's going to break up the boxes. I see Frank Baxter on here. Frank remembers, you know, Arnold saying, I'm going to break up the boxes. I'm going to sweep. He had, he had a broomstick. I'm going to sweep San uh, Sacramento clean. And, uh, and he couldn't do anything. And so, uh, we set out to change the rules under which California uh, legislators were elected. First is we no longer have gerrymandering. We have independent redistricting. The voters approved that change. Then we got top two primary, uh, which the voters approved, which changes the shade of Democrat in blue districts and the shade of Republican, which is less important in our blue state, in red districts. And then the third leg of that stool, I started after we left office, or Arnold left office, in, in April of 2011, I launched Govern for California, kind of like Teach for America was the name, the reason we came up with Govern for California, to provide the funding for legislators. And that's because the other thing I learned that I didn't understand was that the way that the special interests got to the hearts of the legislators, most of whom are well-intentioned, and especially when they first run, is by providing funding, not just to win the elections, but after the elections, which is even more important. And that funding is always direct donations. Independent expenditures don't make any cent difference to an incumbent who is likely to be reelected. Re we have 12 year term limits. And that's demonstrated by my co-teacher at Stanford, a fellow named Joe Nation, who was a state assembly member from Marin County. And Joe tells our students the story of, and this is back in 2000, roughly, he gets elected 
a very idealistic young man at that time, very idealistic, uh, and goes up to Sacramento. And within a, a day or two of arriving, the speaker says, welcome to Sacramento, Joe, go raise me $100,000. Because Joe learned that the only way he could advance inside the assembly, where he was just one of 80 members, the only way you can become a chair of a committee or be in a position to decide, you know, to have, be on a juice committee, not even chair, just be on a juice committee, like appropriations or rules or something like that, is if you raise money for the speaker. And the way you raise that money is in direct donations, which under current law in California are limited to $9,400 per legislator per election cycle. So the special interests are waiting at the train station or the airport in Sacramento for these new legislators who then say, oh my God, I got to raise 100,000. Now that figure is 300,000, by the way. And who do they turn to? Government, those groups that are in the three groups that I mentioned, the government employee unions, the healthcare corporations, the crony capitalists, and the regulated entities. And if you go through CalAccess, which is like open secrets, at the, except for this is the state operated here, you can see these donations and then if you, some of you have read Robert Caro's books on Lyndon Johnson, you can see how Johnson mobilized direct donations to improve his own standing in Congress. So those are all the things that I learned before setting up Government for California. And along the way since then, we're now nine years old. We are now the largest financier of members of uh, and candidates for the California legislature. We're a network of more than 800 members. Martha is one of them, Frank is one of them. Um, and we have 15 chapters, just like SEIU, which has a bunch of chapters. We have local chapters, and every one of our members can give up to $9,400 per cycle per member or candidate. Every one of our chapters, every one of our members can give $7,800 a year per chapter. And each one of those chapters can give up to $9,400 per legislator or candidate per cycle. And that's how we surround legislators with donations. And we, we roll them out just the way the special interests do, a little here, a little there, great deal of frequency, 50 checks a month, that kind of thing. And you can't trade favors with legislators, but they definitely end up understanding what we care about. So that's what Govern for California is. Martha, I hope that's a, a good enough introduction. You can take it from there with questions and uh, have me fill in as needed. Sure. Um, I'll start uh, just to give people time to send in their questions to Liz. Um, the first question I have is, can you give, you mentioned that we need to change from a volunteer footing to more of a business or warlike footing. Um, can you give three tips on, on what that means in terms of organization or, or uh, strategy? Sure. And I think it won't be foreign to this group because, as I understand it, no Labels is made up with uh, people that came from the business world or the, or the competitive world, if you will. And certainly when I was in business, I woke up every morning thinking, what were we going to do to win? Because that's what you have to do in business. Otherwise, you lose and you're out of business. And all of our competitors woke up every day thinking the same thing. What do we do to win? Well, in the political world, that is what the, the, the three groups that I mentioned, they wake up every day thinking, what do we do to win? And I don't blame them from doing that. So the prison guards, the director of the prison guards every day will say, what do we need to do today to win? Well, the one thing I discovered about this environment of political philanthropy, which is what we are. I mean, I'm a volunteer. I underwrite the operating expenses of the enterprise. 
and and most of the people that are donors or people that are not in the political world on a daily basis is they tend to think of it as something volunteer like but you're up against the wehrmacht here this is a war so i can only use the wehrmacht as an example or you're up against amazon in business and you have to compete the way they compete and that means you have to professionalize your enterprise. So for example, at Governor California, I have a full-time political director and legislative affairs director uh, and research director. They're based in Sacramento. Our office is in Sacramento is right across the street from the Capitol. In fact, our office was formerly occupied by the prison guards who now have the floor two ab above us. Legislators in a non-COVID time have to see you all the time. I, I liken it to like, uh, as I understand it, the way serotonin is supposed to work in your brain to give you a sense of comfort. Legislators, they get, they get elected, they go up there with the best of intentions, and once they get there in the state capitol in Sacramento, the only people they see are the special interests every day. They see the prison guards, or they see uh, Chevron, uh, uh, you know, or you know, whoever is lobbying them. They're in the capitol all day long. And then every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night in Sacramento, when they're in session, which is January through September, there are fundraisers. And those fundraisers are always attended by the usual suspects who are the same phases. AT&T is at every one of them. And they've doled out a thousand bucks to go to each one. Well, now Governor for California is at every one of them. And so are our lobbyists. And everybody knows us the same way they know all of the prison guards and, and the others. And in a COVID time, we schedule all these things by Zoom calls, and legislators can do one-stop shopping with us. Their fundraisers can be with the 15 Governor for California chapters, and they will collect as much money from that as they would from any fundraiser. So, uh, Martha, you asked for three, but th those are the examples I use. Is it, it, you have to be ubiquitous, uh, and you have to professionalize it. All right, great. Thank you. Um, the next question is from Bill Kunkler. Good afternoon, uh, David. Um, uh, it's a small world. Your name was mentioned to me by um, Mitt Romney's office a number of months ago. Yeah. Um, I've been working this issue on state finances really as an amateur since March of this year with um, a guy named Richard Porter. Um, you know, we're, we're Illinoisans. We lived in, we live in the most corrupt you know, governed state in the country, unfortunately. And um, given the moment we're in, where Illinois has no choice to, but to go really to the federal government for support, we have advocated that if Illinois gets that support, it should come with strings attached because, you know, uh, I'm part of a group called the Civic Federation in Chicago, which is, you know, a bud. Illinois needs something like this. It's a it's a budget watchdog organization, and we have come up with a restructuring plan for Illinois. But it, dealing with those that govern Illinois, it's like Groundhog Day. You just get nowhere. You try everything, and they've just ignored us. Well, now they have nowhere to go but to the Fed. How do you feel um, about Washington supporting uh, state finances at this point? Thank you. Uh, my pleasure. Yeah, I've talked to Richard Porter. In fact, I was connected by, uh, I think, someone in, in Mitt's office. Uh, and I know Larry Emsall from Civic uh, Federation. I think um, Larry and I met years ago. At least I think he was with Civic. Yes. And um, uh, so I have been actively involved in Washington recently on, uh, on 
I do not want any sort of bailout package for any state, including California. Uh, that will make our job much more difficult because in California, they have covered up, you know, we have well over a trillion dollars of liabilities for just retirement costs, retirement benefits. And California does whatever it can to cover those up while they compound under the surface. So if the feds give us more money, it makes our job more difficult. Illinois has got that problem. And that's why I've talked to Richard. I, I, I do not know if one could be successful in attaching conditions to federal support. So my approach has been to say, we don't need it. And in California, I can show them the revenues, which I've been showing them, and our expenditures. And they can see for themselves that our revenues are much better than the state projected when it closed its budget in June. Uh, and uh, that uh, the expenditure problem is entirely about things that are within the state's own control. So I don't know what Illinois is gonna do, you know, to look at, or ask my team to look at things. In California, we have large direct donation limits, which is important to us. That's, that allows us to bundle more money than our competitors can. We have term limits, which is great when you wanna move legislators out, which we did in our first, we won 51 of 55 races in our first four or six years of, of existence. Once you get good legislators, of course, you'd like no term limits. You'd like them to be there forever. But I don't know what the rules are in Illinois and whether or not you can get your legislators to be responsive. I, I just end by saying, I know there are bad people in Illinois and New York and others has had a lot of corruption. People end up in jail a lot. The, the corruption here is legal corruption. It's legislators getting money from the only people that provide them with that money. So our approach is to provide them with money so they can be independent of those special interests. I do not know if that'll work in Illinois. Yeah, we have the same issue, both legalized and unlegalized. Currently, the Speaker of our House is, the feds are all over him, and, and our electric company has already paid $200 million in fines because of the game that were going on there. But anyway, thank you. I, I look forward to trying to uh, get in touch with you at some point. All right. Uh, next question is Stephen Finkelman. I, I think I have a, probably two questions, maybe an observation question. There's two ways you can do this when you can try to change the turf or you can try to fight on the turf. So it sounds like you're focusing more on fighting on the turf. And one of the issues that comes up, she didn't talk about maybe is like restrictions, like on lobbying, like in particular, like restrictions on government employees or subdivisions lobbying the state, particularly with the prison things. You know, here's the state paying money to them to, you know, the taxpayers are funding their own lobbying efforts. And the other, just a real simple question, um, if you can answer how many state senators do you have and how many state reps do you have? Sure, well, I'll end with that. I'll start with that. We, we have 80 members of the assembly and 40 members of the Senate. The only turf changing I thought was necessary was top two primary and to a lesser extent, independent redistricting. Top two primary was cre a, a crucial to electing a better shade of Democrat especially uh, when there are a lot of open seats. And there will be a lot of open seats again in 2024. Um, I'm not a big fan of fighting on the restrictions because I don't think we can succeed. Um, Ronald, a lot of people don't know this, California didn't have collective bargaining rights for government employees until 1968. When Ronald Reagan, of all people, signed the legislation that granted that authority to local and county employees. And I'm pretty sure, I don't know for certain, but local and county employees are primarily public safety, sheriff and police. They were overwhelmingly Republican at that time. And they had learned from Wisconsin, which had legalized collective bargaining in the 50s, 
that you could use those avenues to collect money from people that would support you. So then Jerry Brown signed the legislation in 1976 and 78, which extended those rights, those same rights, to state employees and school district employees. And that's when everything went, everything went to hell. You combine that with a, a, a bill known as AB8, which followed our Prop 13, everything got centralized in Sacramento. And the only people paying the most attention were the government employee unions. Well, we are not gonna get rid of collective bargaining for government employees in California. I asked Arnold to try for it. Even Arnold, who's a gutsy guy, wouldn't even go there. And there's just no chance that's gonna change. And I will, but I will tell you, if I had a magic wand, that is the first thing I would do. And Tim Kaine, every Democrat I know understands this. Tim Kaine once told me, after he'd been governor in Virginia and was in the Senate, he said, and I was still with Arnold then, he said, David, the only difference between me governing Virginia and Arnold governing California is that my employees in Virginia didn't have collective bargaining rights. And I, and I think Nancy could confirm this, every Democrat who governs knows that this is a big difference in states. It's why you know, a Bill Clinton can get elected from a state like Arkansas, which has limited rights, et cetera. Well, that's the only thing I would try and change in California. Any rules about their, you know, their inability to donate, for example, I think would violate the First Amendment. And by the way, they have that right. The problem is us. This is like a mispriced security. The amount of money that they donate is tiny. Prison guards donate about a million dollars a year and collect 10 billion a year. Well, my organization this last year has bundled $3 million for legislators, equal to what SEIU does. That to me is the only way to fight this. And people have got to stop complaining about money and politics and all the rest and get in the ring and fight the way our opponents do. That's my answer to that. I love that. Alternative funding stream. Um, next questions from uh, Eleanor Bigelow. Hi, uh, thank you so much, David, for speaking to us today. Um, one quick question, who do you think might win the election on November 3rd, presidential election? And then specifically about Santa, San Francisco Unified Schools, um, they have not opened schools, as you probably know. Um, and is there a way to pressure them to open up the public schools in a safe manner? Thank you very much. Sure. Um, first of all, I have to, honestly, I stick to my knitting so much. Our core competency is the state legislature and state legislation. So I have no idea who's going to win. I know more than you. I have the same information you have. Um, secondly, um, a San Francisco Unified School District is a disaster. And my public affairs director, Celeste Semperi is her name. Uh, Martha, I think, knows her. She's got, th she's got a, a terror for a boss. She's got three kids at San Francisco Unified School District who are all of school age, and they are all learning at home. And her husband has a full-time job. It is absurd what, is she, what she is going through. Well, the only way that's going to change is you could, even if we had a pro-student San Francisco Board of Education, which we don't, and we have, we have helped an organization called Champions for Education, which is now copying our model. They are bundling for school board races. Uh, they're starting small. They don't have anybody in the SFUSD race. But you'd have to start there with having a pro-student board, which they don't have. And even that wouldn't be sufficient because, they, because the California Teachers Association and the California Federation of Teachers, those two unions, have so much authority still over the state legislature and the governor. So it's a disaster. Now, this year, 
will be the first year in nine years that we will go directly at CTA and CFT with reforms. We are gonna go after last in first out termination of teachers under California law, teachers are terminated in, during a layoff session, last in first out regardless of performance. So you could have Helen Keller teaching and that person would get fired if she's the last one in. We, we, we're gonna go after that this year. CTA is gonna try and kill us on that. And we're gonna go after other post-employment benefits, which is subsidies for retiree healthcare, which is a completely redundant subsidy, unnecessary in California, that is stripping at SFUSD $30 million a year this year. That Those two reforms will be wars. Watch and see what happens. And at best, 50-50 that we win. So that's my long-winded answer to just getting kids in school. I mean, LAUSD, I, I just got an email from um, a state senator, Ben Allen, uh, Frank, um, telling me that they're they're looking at granting some waivers at LAUSD to get kids back in school. So maybe that's a start. All right. Uh, next, Terry McLean. Thanks. I was just wondering how you manage the distributions of your funding and, and how you encourage members. It sounds like you bring the funds in at no labels. We have, I mean, we've talked openly about essentially telling all the people who are texting and calling and saying, hey, I want your money as a U.S. House Representatives member say, are you a problem solver? If you're not, I'm not going to donate to your campaign. It's something that I've done and I'm sure many others at no labels have done. Do you have anything similar at yeah. Governor California? Yeah. Uh, so uh, we, we do the following. First of all, um, I got two private letter rulings from the California Fair Political Practices Commission that allow members of the Govern for California network to donate to multiple members of the legislature or candidates or multiple committees. We have, all the, we have those 15 local chapters, each one co-chaired by at least two Govern for Californians. Um, you can make, somebody can make multiple donations with a single check or a single click. And then I got somebody from Google, ex-Google, to write the software to allow that to happen. So if you you can see, and maybe something you all would want to mimic, and I'd be happy to help you do that, if you go to the Government for California website and you click on the donate button, you can see the way that opportunity is, is provided. And then we got a second private letter ruling from the Fair Political Practices Commission that allows our local chapters cord to coordinate with each other. So you ask, how do we pick? In, in, uh, in contested races, when there's a real race, we pick legislators based on five factors because they're gonna win. I mean, once they win, they're gonna be there for 12 years. It's almost certain because there's a big incumbency advantage. So we think of it this way. That's 12 years of $300 billion a year of spending and up to 5,000 bills a year amending those 29 codes. So it's almost like you're giving money capital to a money manager under a 12-year lockup. We want people to meet five tests, intelligence, financial literacy, the right legislative temperament, the ability to win, and courage by which we mean they care about something greater than themselves. We do not base it upon anything they say. I will point that out. Uh, unless they're a first-time candidate, in which case we will still try and base it on, on what they do. We look at what they do. And th to me, there's no greater gulf than that that exists between what legislators and candidates say and what they actually do. So we, we look at what they do. So the, the members of our network, and what you won't see on our website now is a candidate slate. You only see the chapter slate, and then you'll see a, a place where people can donate to operating expenses, which are non-political. The candidate slate, 
the members of our can of our network get to pick. They can go down there and they can pick which legislators they want to give to, and we give them recommended amounts, which are all too very often less than the maximum amount because we don't think they necessarily need so much and we have a sense of how big our network is. And they also get to pick their chapters. Now, oftentimes they will ask us for advice because it's very complicated. And Nancy can probably figure out a smoother way than I have figured it out to do it. I mean, I've understood, I understand that at APAC, which has it easier because they're single issue, they act, their members actually give their credit card number to APAC and APAC can charge contributions which are direct to legislators on that member's credit card. That would be the greatest thing in the world if we could do something like that. But our issues are broader. So I don't know if that's a very good answer. It's more complicated than I would like it to be, but the money has to go direct to legislators and it also has to be dribbled out. AT&T, SCIU and all the rest will dribble out the money. You never wanna give a legislator a max out in my view or rarely, unless they needed to win a race. You want them to get almost addicted to you. It's almost Skinnerian in a way, where they, you, you're, at, you're passing out money to them over time and they draw an inference that you're gonna be there for them, but they draw an inference also that if they don't, you know, if they start doing the business of special interest, we're not gonna be there for them. So it's kind of like running a business. Uh, that's not a very good answer, but that's the best I can do. Makes sense. Um, next up uh, is Barry Kramer. Yeah, th thank you, David. You're really uh, educating me a lot here. Um, the way you're describing things, it seems like California's government is broken in a different way than the federal government, or, or, or let me state it differently, not quite the same way. Special interest issues, certainly at the federal government as well. But at the federal government, we, we seem to have a lot of political polarization, demonization of people who don't agree with you, et cetera. And I, I don't hear you saying that about what the problem is in, 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 at the California level. Um, I, I hear you say that you're not an expert at the federal level, but I'm wondering if you could kind of compare and contrast a little bit how the system isn't working at the federal level compared to the California level. Sure. Um, well, we have all of that in spades. And if you follow what legislators say, and with it, we follow them on Twitter, because we like to see what they say, because there they're signaling virtue to their districts. There's um, immense polarization, and uh, I don't know how many of you are from California, but you can see it in the press all the time, et cetera. There's less of it than there used to be because of the changes that were made in with top two primary and independent redistricting. And also we've been around now for nine years, and as the largest funder, we are funding people to become less partisan in the way they behave in the legislature. But I will tell you, I mean, Nancy and I discussed this briefly and I learned from her about the power of the parties, which we have taken away a lot of that in California because of top two primary, that may be the big difference, but the money. So I, well, the class I teach this quarter is health policy. And we assigned to our students, they had to go to opensecrets.org and they had to look at the house health subcommittee to look at donations to the chair and the ranking member there. And since the Democrats just flipped the house, you can go back and see what it was like before they flipped the house. And the thing that stood out to all of our students are two, two things stood out. One, the money's not that big. Anna Eshoo, who is chair of that committee, gets less than $200,000 a year from pharma, for example. Burgess, I think his name is, who's the ranking member from Texas, the Republican, gets something more or less, I don't know what it is, I don't know. But the amounts are staggeringly small. And I can give each one of those members $5,600. 
So the amounts that they raise, and by the way, when you go through it, and uh, I'm sure some of you have done this, you are always struck by the people that get money from the special interests, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, you know, all the usual suspects who are very polarized in their words have taken money from all the special interests up there. And that's why, for example, people run all the time saying, you know, this is ridiculous. Medicare is not allowed to negotiate wholesale prices, even though it's the biggest purchaser of prescription drugs in the world. That's all true. And the reason is, is because those members on the House Health Subcommittee and the other committees that are associated with that will continue to do the bidding of pharma until, in my view, they get released to be independent by people like us. So if Martha Conti and, and 20 other people gave $5,600 a year, and you had to do it to at least, I don't know, again, Nancy would know better than me, 50 to 100 of those legislators, and you put together a network from around the country and contributed money so they could count on you providing them with 100 to $200,000 a year forever, because you got to be there forever, they will start to behave in different ways. That's my view. And, and I didn't want to forget this. I learned that from John Kerry, because when, when Kerry was senator and Arnold was governor, they're friendly, and uh, uh, Kerry called Arnold about something. Arnold said, why don't you call him back and uh, to see if maybe he can help us with this. And so I called Kerry back, and we had talked about our business. Then I said, Senator, I happen to be a Democrat. I said, when is our party going to stop doing the bidding of all these special interests? And he goes, David, they're always there for us. And those words were very powerful to me. We always have to be there for legislators that legislate in the general interest. And even after nine years in California and being the largest funder now and with our network, legislators still are not certain that we will be there forever, whereas they know the prison guards union is going to be there forever because the money's coming into them. So you have to be that in my view. And I really believe that will, you, you'll still see the polarization when they're running and the way they'll tweet and they'll talk but the way they be, behave will be different. That's my hope as well. Okay, thank you, Bill Kaufman, next. Thanks a lot. Uh, you've already answered the question on the uh, two primary system and it's worked well. Uh, do you have views on ranked choice voting and whether or not it's, uh, it's likely to occur in, in California or elsewhere? Well, I don't think we need it in Cal. So first of all, I, I do have a view. I think it's very complicated for most people. I'm not a fan of it, um, but I'm pretty biased because I was such a fan of top two and I was a principal instigator inside the Schwarzenegger administration to push for that once the Supreme Court said it was, it was legal in 2007. So um, I, I just think ranked choice is confusing uh, and I don't want to make it more confusing for people as to the chances of getting it. I know some people in California would like to have that. We do have it, for example, in mayoral races in Oakland and some local communities in California. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. In other states, when I've talked to people about their pursuit of political reform, like top two primary or ranked choice, uh, I know how hard it is to get those laws changed in those states. And I, California may be unique in that way in that we had two things going for it in getting both independent redistricting and top two. One, we had Arnold. And you know people don't give enough credit for this. It's a lot for a politician to lobby for something that will not benefit themselves. And, and, and the, the benefit of that came later. And two, we had Charles Munger Jr. to put up the money. And that's independent expenditures. And on statewide races, that sort of independent non-max out donation makes a very big difference. 
So you'd need something similar maybe in your, what state are you in? New York. Yeah. Well, New York also doesn't have term limits, which I've discovered is a serious problem for you. Okay. Um, next question from Martin Schwartz. Yes. Hi, David. Uh, we've met before. Yes. Uh, I, I know you don't like to be too upfront about uh, uh, your organization supporting pension reform, but can you at least from 10,000 feet, what, what are the prospects of pension reform in California in, in my lifetime? If, yeah. If, if any. Well, you got to tell me how long you're going to live, Martin. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm the same age as you. So, uh, okay. All right. well, I'm planning to live a long time. Uh, <laughs> So, so we are careful about pension reform. I mean, uh, for, part of it is an overreaction because I was so associated with it. I, the, I got kicked off of the state teachers retirement system in 2006 and denied a full term on the regents because the unions had so much power over the state Senate that they could do that because I had simply raised the issue about the, the truth of the math. Um, and so we wanted to make sure government for California is not perceived by legislators as just being a pro-pension reform right. organization. And last year, for example, the, uh, the first major reform that we led was something completely different than that, as you may know, which is the liberation of nurse practitioners mm -hmm. uh, yes. in California, which is very beneficial to access. It's a bill that the nurse practitioners had tried for 13 years to get and always been beaten until government for California muscled it through last year. So now the legislature knows Govern for California has muscle and they're hopefully drawing the inference that we're gonna be there forever and we can go for more, which is why this year we're gonna go for OPEB, which is like the little sister of pension reform uh, and LIFO. And both of those take on, involve taking on the same groups that we would need to beat on pension reform. I believe we will get pension reform in California, but the odd, but you know, I am incredibly biased now. There's only been one major pension reform in this country, and it was led by the most courageous politician I know in the United States, who's Gina Raimondo, the governor of Rhode Island. And I had Gina come out and, and give a, a speech to our legislators about political reform and reforms like that. Um, but I do, do not believe it can happen until we are able to demonstrate enough muscle that legislators, before they take it up, will feel comfortable that there'll be 62 votes. Mm -hmm. And I think that'll have to happen after we get OPEB reform and some other reforms. And also we, we have been blocking a number of things. You know, the way you demonstrate power, I've learned you have to win some elections, then you have to start giving money to legislators who beat you because then they start realizing you are acting not like a political philanthropist, but like a special interest, just like SEIU. Mm -hmm. Then you have to differentiate in your giving. We're giving money to people who will help us on one thing. Connie Leva helped us on AB 890, but she's terrible for on education reform. So they have to draw an inference. Again, you're very much like a special interest. Then you got to block some bad bills. So the tax measures last year or the last session, mm -hmm. we played a big role in blocking. I don't think the governor would sign them anyway, but we had to help block them in the legislature and some labor reforms that never saw the light of day that we have to be quiet about that got blocked. And then, then you got to lead a big reform where you beat a special interest. And that was the nurse practitioner bill because that beat California Medical Association who are the doctors union, doctors association, and to most legislators like the Wizard of Oz, they're powerful, but they're not that big. And we beat them. And now legislators know they can, GFC is powerful, but that is not the same as beating CTA, CCPOA or the prison guards or the Federation of Teachers. So I hope all that happens before you, you know, while you're living, that we get it all done. <laughs> so stick around. Uh, okay. <laughs>
Uh, now we have a question from Megan McTiernan. Hi, thank you very much. I have a question about the state proposition system. When I've seen the pie chart of California, how much of the math is, how much the budget's already allocated? Are there opportunities to modify what it takes to get things on the ballot and through, through that system? Yeah, well, it's not true. It's a shibboleth that is often used by legislators so they can say to people that they don't have the power to fix things. They did that for years with uh, our um, huge prison population, which they tried to tell voters and others who you know, asked, raised concerns about it, that that was due to three strikes, which was an initiative that was passed by voters. But that was nowhere near to the, close to the truth. It was because that, that happened because of determinate sentencing, which was statutory legislation signed by Jerry Brown in 1975, and California's prison population went up like a hockey stick after that. And that could have been changed any time after that statutorily. Um, the, the proposition system uh, is responsible for Prop 98, which guarantees the first 40 cents of every dollar to K through 14 education, which is K through 12 community colleges. But we were doing 40% to K through 14 before Prop 98. The debt service is guaranteed by the Constitution, not by a proposition. And uh, pensions and retiree health care, which are contractual, are not proposition-related. They are guaranteed by the contracts clause in the Constitution. So um, it's much, much more of the spending is fiscally protected. So, for example, Medicaid, Medicaid spending, the state will spend about $32 billion of that $100 billion this year. Uh, the state isn't required by by constitution or proposition to do that. The state does it based upon it. It's in the state's interest to do so. The state wants to provide that healthcare, and the feds are putting up most of the money. So, having said all that, we hate propositions, but there's nothing we can do about them, and we have no edge in that world. We're not uh, uh, independent expenditures dominate those, and the unions and the other special interests can always go that route if they want to try and prevail. Our responsibility is to empower legislators to exercise the muscle that they have, and they can attend to virtually every problem California has. All right, um, Maxine Clark, do you have a question? Yes, thank you. Uh, I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. I didn't know St. Louis, Missouri had so many things in common with uh, California, lots of them. But I was curious about, um, particularly about the fires that we watch every year that happen in California and the tremendous um, economic impact that must have on the state, um, on insurance, on all kinds of things. And I'm wondering how does the state legislature uh, engage with that? How can it be made to be, I, I mean, I'm not sure you can erase the fires, but you know, the impact and the uh, financial impact has to be enormous. Well, it isn't. Uh, it's going to surprise you. And I know that the press will report stuff from California all the time. The fires get a lot of press. We have a $3 trillion economy. Uh, it's the fifth largest, depending on currencies, you know, fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. It's very diversified. The largest industry in California still is real estate and professional services is the second largest. IT, which everybody equates to California, is probably third or fourth. Entertainment, you probably think is a really big industry. It's about 20 billion. Even agriculture, everybody thinks California, it's really big in California, it's 40 billion. Um, it's a larger share of employment. So the fires don't have as big of an impact on our economy as people think. 
uh, they have a very big impact on our quality of life. As Martha and I both have discovered in any of it, but he, and people in Los Angeles as well, but in, in Northern California, where we are, you, you know, we're smug about our air compared to LA. It's been unbelievably bad because of the fires up here. And I don't know enough about forest management. We do have members of the Government for California Network who own a lot of timber. So we do get advice from them. And their advice is, it's a combination of climate change and very significantly forest management. And there was even the article in ProPublica of all places, that California used to burn 20 million acres a year in prehistoric times or something like that. So I don't know what we can do about those fires, but the impact economically is not nearly as big as is our lousy K through 12 education system on which we spend $100 billion a year which is 65% more than we spent a decade ago with no improvement in performance. Our, our, our lousy, our Medicaid system on which we spent 100 billion a year, which is twice as I mentioned we spent 10 years ago with no improvement in public health. A, a very significant improvement in a reduction in stress levels because people have insurance that didn't have it before, but public health hasn't improved. And in our very, very bad licensing and labor laws, uh, which make it hard for people to and business and professions laws, open businesses, staff those businesses, pay their employees without having to pay a zillion fees, et cetera. That has a much bigger impact on California's economy than the fires. All right. Um, so you do a lot of work, David, on these kind of reforms. What do you see as the potential for that at the federal level? We at No Labels generally don't you know, as an alternative funding stream, we're, we're rewarding those that work in a bipartisan way, but not specifically promoting policies. What do you think the potential is for reforms that would create better government if we were to support those reforms specifically? Yeah. Well, I don't know because I don't know enough, but I will tell you this. I've made every mistake in the book. And along the way, I learned a number of things and I always reserve the right to change my mind. One is you have to find people to support even if you don't like their positions on a number of issues because you will never find, you get one legislator per district. So California is a good example. We have a state senator from San Francisco that people in Southern California and Stanford area hate. Scott Wiener is his name because he tries to build more housing in California and he really splits our network. But he is excellent on charter schools. He is excellent on labor reform. He would reform pensions and all the rest. And you know, he meets all the. He can get elected in San Francisco, which is, you know, he, he's got a, a you know a Bernie Sanders backed opponent that he's fighting a real battle with right now. So you will never get a legislator who's going to do everything great, right? And so, I have found you got to find people that you like. And the nice thing you have at the federal level is no term limits, and you have to support them. Uh, and give and put them in a position where they can gain more power. So that's the, the second lesson I learned is help people get more power. Because when they're one of like, what is it, 435 members of the, of the House? So they're one of 260 Democrats? They're nobody. And to get to be somebody, you got to be Nancy or you, could, somebody could tell me, chair of this committee or that committee. And that often means bundling money for the speaker. Is that the way it works? I don't know. But that's the way it works here. So here... You know, we are helping legislators, including ones who are doing things I hate. We are bundling money for them that they are then using, especially the freshmen, to get more powerful, to please the speaker, and that makes them chair of a committee. And so you're kind of making, like, building a field team. And then down the road, you hope they're going to be there for the reforms you want. 
And so it's, it's there, there's no long-term, it's like, I can't scope it out. I can just say those things. And uh, I'd have to know more about how you get power inside the House or inside the Senate. I don't know, I, I got a lot of what I know about the, for the feds from Robert Caro's book and Lyndon Johnson, who in November of 1940, you know, goes from, from being a supplicant to powerful by bundling six $5,000 checks from, as it turns out, Brown and Root executives to other members of Congress to help them win. And all of a sudden, those members owe their allegiance to him. That's the way it works. And we want members in California's legislature owning their allegiance to the people we support. All right. That sounds good. Um, so we have one final question from Stamen Ogilvie, and then uh, we're going to have Bill Galston wrap it up. David, uh, in the moments before this call actually began, I think you were speaking about the SEIU and its business model. You've referenced uh, the virtue of knowing everybody by name in the legislative process, but what other things do you find uh, worthy of copying in the SEIU business model? Well, the things I would choose are uh, the ones I mentioned. You know, they run it like a business, and it is a business for them. They get their members a lot of money. Uh, and by the way, we are on all kinds of, we are opposed to them and with them. They were with us on the nurse practitioner bill. We are opposed to them on a number of issues, the pension reform, I guarantee you, OPEB reform, they're going to hate us. Um, but they run it like a business, number one. Number two, they created all these chapters. I didn't discover the chapter idea. And I don't know if they have this equivalent at the federal level, but we have these 15 chapters. You know how I've mentioned dribbling out money? So you have to, you have to pay attention to what legislators are doing daily. Uh, with the chapters, we can do that, and we can dribble out $500 checks here and there during the month. Well, we got our chapter idea from them, and so we set up 15 of them. I'm kind of surprised Martha's not already a co-chair of one of our chapters, but they're usually for the more politically active members of our network. And like this morning, I had a, an hour-long call with members of, that, of those chapters. Now, each one has to be independently governed, so that's why I got the private letter ruling allowing us to coordinate, but they have to make their own donation decisions. So we raise all their money. They can raise on their own if they want, but we raise money, which is $7,800 per year per donor max. And then they decide how to, share, uh, to send it out. And they're shipping out those checks using our law firm. We, we create all the, uh, the software for them, et cetera, to make it really easy for them to ship out those checks just the way SEIU does all the time. And that's pretty much it. It's like, um, oh, and you have to do it forever, which is my biggest worry now. Because I'm 66, uh, I'm not going anywhere, but the members of the legislature have to know that it's not so dependent upon David Crane, which is why it's more and more they are interacting with our co-chairs, many of whom are very young, some of whom are my former students at Stanford, and they're just unbelievably terrific. And by the way, our network, we have members of the Government for California Network who are Trump supporters and Bernie Sanders supporters. What they have in common is they want California to operate for the benefit of its residents, they want public schools to work, Medi-Cal to actually provide services, prisons not to be overfilled, prison guards not to get all the money, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, you need an organization where everybody knows it's going to last well beyond the founder. And that's my biggest worry right now. We have to make sure they know it goes well beyond me. Thank you. Thank you, David. Um, I so appreciate you coming and speaking with us and, and giving us your wisdom. And I hope this is just the beginning of sharing best practices with you. Um, I'm gonna hand it over to Bill Galston, uh, who will uh, wrap it up for us. All right, thank you for having me. It was really yeah. fun. 
David, first of all, thank you so much uh, for joining us, uh, being so generous with your time. There are some differences between your organization and, and No Labels, uh, but you have made the same discovery that we made. And that is that if you have ideas, uh, but the people you need to carry those ideas are unwilling to do so because they'll pay a price for doing it, uh, then you need to provide an effective counterweight. Uh, and the people on this call are among the important people in the country who are helping us to provide that effective counterweight. Nancy Jacobson, our founder, uh, saw this clearly not long after we got started. It took us a while to figure out how to do it and who could help us do it, but now we're doing it and we are providing what we call air cover uh, for people who, you know, people who break with leadership and are willing to do the right thing and take that chance. Obviously, you take a chance every time you break away from, from what, what you're being asked to do by leadership. Uh, but you take less of a chance if you have alternate sources of support uh, in case the people who are the usual sources of support turn their backs on you, uh, which they do, or finance an opponent who's more congenial, which they've been known to do. So, you know, we, you know, we are absolutely in agreement with you that putting ideas together with resources is the name of the game. Uh, and I can just speak for myself. I'm enormously impressed by the way you've made that work in California, by the kinds of networks and grassroots support you've built, uh, and, and also by the long distance vision that you've displayed, helping young people uh, get into positions where they, can, where they can do the right thing and perhaps govern better uh, than, than, than before. So again, thank you. It's a model that I think we can study and learn from, and I hope vice versa. And uh, let's keep on talking. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, David. We did too. Bye-bye. See you. David Crane explains that when he began in state government advising Arnold Schwarzenegger, he was stunned by how little he knew about the state legislature, its role, and its relationship with the governor. He goes on to note the vital need for people, companies, and organizations to know the names of the state legislators who represent them on a local level. Although so many of us fixate on national politics, local politicians often have the most impact on our lives because they control and provide the social services that impact us daily. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break on No Labels Podcast. Thank you.